All right, and welcome to the Blacklist Sessions. It's a brand new episode. I think we're up to number 11, which is uh, really exciting. We've had some great guests, and I'm really excited for our next guest all the way from South Australia. We have Lyndon Holland from CBD Insurance. How are you? Oh, I'm excellent, Jay. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. It's really exciting to be here. Yeah, yeah. I'm so so um, grateful to have you on because you've done some quite incredible stuff from uh, what I've been reading uh, with your life, and I'd be really interested to, to hear a lot of it through the uh, episode. So, to start off with, um, I'd like to hear about your journey, about how you got into running your own business. Wow, that's an interesting question. Um, I uh, I didn't finish school. I, I went through to year nine or just started year 10 and mum sent me out to work and I was a sheet metal worker, so tough sort of job. Um, I was involved in having some metal splinters into my hand and when the owner of the business found out that I had metal splinters, he asked me to leave. So it only lasted a few weeks, but it was interesting. I made the fans that went into the Westinghouse um, fan-forced ovens. Uh, From there, I decided that I wasn't going to work hard like that anymore. So I looked around and looked for different avenues, found a job in finance and insurance at a motor vehicle dealership for a couple of months, then looked around for something that really excited me. Yeah, fantastic. It seems like a like an interesting journey because I know a lot of people uh, when they when they're looking to start a business, the the thing that they really get stuck against is there is like the uncertainty because a lot of people feel really safe in a, a nine to five five job and they they just do that and they're like I, I'd like to take this risk, but you know I've got this going and this going and there seems to be a lot of excuses and and of course it is it can be quite challenging, especially if you've got like uh, responsibilities beyond yourself. So what do you think it was that got you to take that leap to? I I guess jump into the unknown yeah look the unknown is an interesting one i mean the uncertainty and unknown is is a, a fear that you develop that really you need to learn to push aside and push through mm-hmm. i i took on the unknown because i wanted to have a, a bit of better life than what i was used to and i wanted to to build some credibility i wanted to at that time help people and and help people understand what it was to save themselves against risk and as it's grown over the last nearly 40 years it's just been an incredible journey and what I've seen people do and we've been able to educate some and others just don't understand it at all it's incredible (laughs) yeah that's right some people they just uh, don't get it (laughs) it's uh yeah it has been quite amazing even in in, within my lifetime I'm I'm 28 and just seeing like how much more you can get uh, insured for these days you know I've seen ads for like pet insurance and and all these new things that I just don't remember when I was a kid so um, I guess what is some of the more interesting things that you would insure? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I've had a, a couple of phone calls from big corporations about the coronavirus and, mm. and, you know, are we insured against that or could we be insured against that? Most definitely, I mean, most policies or a lot of policies exclude pandemics. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are finding out that if they uh, contract the coronavirus uh, whilst they're in their own country or, or they've, they've not travelled or whatever, they're excluded from that. So it's uh, those sorts of things come up now when this happens and certainly it's something you can go to the, the world and ask them to provide cover for it because the disruptions are huge. I mean, Qantas is already saying it's lost $150 million mm. and, uh, um, you know, for a small business to lose 
$20,000 or $100,000 could be devastating. So you need to insure against the known and the unknown, and it's the unknown that always gets us. Yeah, that's right. You know, if you know about it, you can you can prepare. But uh, I guess it's great to talk to uh, people who are experts and would see these kind of things pop up because this kind of came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden it was this massive thing. And yeah, like as you said, like Qantas losing 150 million, like that's not a small sum. And I know uh, even even for my own business, not with the coronavirus, but just the fires, like we had quite a few things cancelled because they were just like so devastating and so widespread and. You know, like maybe, maybe the government could have known about it and done a better job, but sometimes not. Yeah, with the fires, that's an interesting one. I've got too much of an opinion on that. I think mm-hmm. that we've, uh, as a government and as a country, we've neglected to uh, identify the risks and put in effective controls to actually stop it. It could be prevented so easily. And considering that three months earlier, in California, half of California burned down. So we should have said, well, hang on a minute. We're denser than that. We're, we're drier than that. If that can happen in California, what's going to happen here? We could have prevented a lot of loss, any loss of life really from human life um, by having a, a proper risk register, documenting it and putting in effective controls. Corporations, governments, small business are the same. And when I ask somebody, do you have a risk register? Have you checked the controls? Do they work? Are they effective? They just look at me like Mona Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. I think um, something I noticed that was quite a similarity between the Australian government and the, the Chinese government was that they seemed to be really slow to react when it, it was pretty clear that it was going to become a bigger thing. So, I guess um, if you translate that from government to small businesses, I guess you, you really need to be prepared for, for those risks because you never know when they're going to pop up and become quite a big thing. Yeah, I mean, when the the government writes standards and and the ISO 9001 and those sorts of things and they they talk to you about how to identify risks and do whatever you need to prevent, they they just don't implement it. They just don't look at it correctly. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes the ideas that come out of people's Mouths are just incredible. I don't believe it. They don't <laughs> identify a risk properly. They don't identify it by the likelihood and the consequences. And that's what it is. So some of the examples are we've seen um, in the Australian Navy, they had a ladder as a risk. Mm-hmm. And when we approached them and, and my good friend Rod said to them, what's the risk of the ladder? They said, well, the ladder's a risk. And he said, well, the ladder doesn't jump out of the cupboard. Yep. What the risk is, is in proper use of the ladder, causing somebody to fall off, mm-hmm. causing injury or death, that's the risk. The ladder's not a risk. Yep. And a couple of other examples, hospitals registers normally have food poisoning on their register as a risk. It's no risk at all, Jay, if it's not distributed. The risk is when it's distributed, consumed, and causes an outbreak. But if you catch it at the kitchen, there's no risk. Yeah, so it's definitely about being more specific yes. and uh, really nutting down on what it actually is, the, the specific thing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, got, it's the resultant damage. You know, speeding's not a risk unless you get caught. It's, it's the fine or it's the accident. <laughs> yep, or the tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, you've, you've got to understand what 
the resultant damage is, and that's what people don't identify. They don't, they, you know, when they say, "Oh, there's a risk of, you know, um, death because by this or by that," and then you know, certain things such as the the air force or the army call loss of life, you know, collateral damage, um, and they're incredible when they look at their risk register and the way they identify a thing in logistics and those sorts of things. But it's not passed on to everybody. When we we become a accountants and we, we graduate or lawyers or whatever, they don't teach us how to run a business. They don't teach us how to identify a risk. They just teach us what they do and we move on and, and we're by ourselves and, and alone. So we really need to implement that in educating people. And that's what we do. We educate people. We help them identify what the resultant damage could be, what the risk is and how to mitigate and transfer the risk somewhere else. Yeah, I think that that's something great because a lot of people kind of like disregard it and they don't think about it until something really bad happens. They're like, oh God, I wish I was prepared. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of uh, self-employeds don't have income protection insurance. Mm -hmm. Now, my biggest asset is my ability to earn an income. And mm. if my income stops, I can't pay the mortgage, I can't pay the school. And they go, oh, it will never happen to me. Don't kid yourself it happens to a lot of people and there is probably three chances in a lifetime that you will suffer some sort of disability mm. and if it's a major one it can it could cause a loss of home divorce lots of things that you really don't think of and what I, I don't understand and what I don't get, Jay, is that people don't seem to understand or care. I don't know if it's the care. I think it's they just don't understand what the damage could be and what that looks like when it happens. Yes, definitely. So, uh, with your background in risk, risk management, you're, you're an expert in the area. Uh, was that something that really helped you to starting your own business? Look, it's it's something that I've, I've developed over a few years. I completed my advanced diploma in... Um, governance, risk and compliance uh, a few years back now and I realised in doing that that we were identifying risks incorrectly and I needed to be able to help people with their mitigation programs, their risk profiles and those sorts of things, how to understand it. Because we saw things popping up all the time. Mm. And when we uh, did our course with Paladin in um, Canberra, Rod Farah showed us a different way of, of identifying risks and it's it's a new breed and it's a new thing it's created some excitement throughout the industry yet some people still don't understand it so we need to get that message out yeah well that's it i mean as technology goes on and things uh, improve and change there's so many more risks that end up popping up like i i guess maybe 30 years ago the the risk of cyber uh, crimes and things like that would have been a lot lower than they are now so is that something you've seen an increase in in your business yeah look cyber is an interesting one. We see about three or four million attacks at a time wow. of cyber around the globe. Um, and if you just Google um, cyber attacks now, it shows you a world map of them actually trying to get into people's systems. Three million sounds like a lot, but when you're talking about the globe, it's a very, very small amount. We've seen it uh, destroy businesses. We saw it uh, destroy TNT many years ago, and now Toll have fallen victim of exactly the same thing. So even the big corporates, the world giants still get affected by these things and as a small business goes don't think that you're immune because you're not because it doesn't matter to them all they want is their money and if they can get 5,000 out of you or 10,000 or 20,000 they'll do it and we find that a lot of people go well if if I go five or six days 
through this and I don't pay it, it's going to cripple my business. You can insure yourself against that and the insurance companies step in, they negotiate, they help you rebuild everything around it. The worst thing you can do is actually pay it because you don't know who you're paying and you could be funding a terrorist group. Mm. And therefore, under the, the, the Privacy Act and the Corporations Act and the Terrorist Act, you could be actually committing a criminal offence. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's yeah. a lot of, a lot of um, something really interesting that a lot of people wouldn't even think of, you know, because they just want their stuff back. And then, yep. you know, inadvertently funding a, a, a terrorism group or an attack, which is pretty crazy <laughs> when yeah. you think about it. Yeah, and most people wouldn't know that. They wouldn't understand that. It's, it's you know, day to day, I mean, there, there is a, a, a thousand different conditions on a, a director in a company to comply with the Australian Securities and Investment Commission's Corporations Act. You just don't know all of those. So daily, we we actually break the law. If you don't have insurance or mitigation to prevent uh, the insurance, uh, the the risk. Uh, from crippling your business, it's actually against the law to do that because you have to do it. Not that they implement it, mm-hmm. but if, if it causes loss of shareholders, money and all those sorts of things, you could be criminally charged. So you need to make sure that you're covered for all of those risks. Yeah, well, that is something really important to get insured against. Um, a few episodes ago, I had a chat to a guy named Mario Beckers and he's an international spy and he uh, uncovers like cases of fraud and things like that. And he had a fantastic example um, of where people would basically basically get access to servers they wouldn't even go through the internet to do it but they would go and speak to someone who's on you know quite a low wage and collect all that information and then find a way to get in um so there's so many different ways that people can get into a centralized server like in the case of amazon like everyone puts their stuff on on the cloud and they do a lot of cloud computing that's something that can be quite dangerous uh in this day and age so it makes even more sense to insure against that it's really interesting yesterday i was talking to an uber driver um, and he was from the Department of Defence from the UK and he's moved to Australia. Now, he's got the highest clearance in the world as far as security because that's what he does, data and data transfer. And he his um, security's been um, knocked back in Australia because he knows too much information and they're suggesting that he might be somebody who might be a risk. Mm-hmm. So the, the, it's really, really serious. The global cyber risk um, attacks are very, very serious. And today, the fines in Europe, if you're importing or exporting or you're taking money over the internet and you breach the European um, privacy laws, you could be up for fines for $100 million. And they've issued $100 million fines to corporations in Europe. Australia, not quite so bad. $10 million is the fine mm-hmm. or the maximum fine. And there's there's lots of risk. If you're exporting from China or you're exporting from Slovakia or somewhere around the world and your goods are sold in Australia, you become the manufacturer under Australian law. Mm-hmm. So the risk is and, – and people say, well, I, I don't cover the warranty. I don't cover it. Well, under law in Australia, if you bring it here, you are the manufacturer and you've deemed to have to, uh, under consumer laws – cover that risk or cover that warranty. So a lot of people don't understand that when they're doing it through the internet. You're still going to be exposed to those laws worldwide. Definitely. And yeah, as the world has become a lot more globalised, you would see that a lot. I, mm. I, I guess you'd be working with a lot of companies that would be exporting and importing from overseas. So you'd have to be across all the laws and regulations, restrictions, all that kind of thing, like worldwide. So that must be a pretty big job. Yeah, look, it is an interesting job. I went to see somebody June last year and, and they were into 
uh, freight management. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's what they did. They didn't have any trucks or anything else, but they imported, exported, did all of those sorts of things. They didn't have any liability insurance at all. At all. They were well. turning over half a billion dollars a year <laughs> and they didn't understand that they needed to have that liability insurance or marine cargo insurance. And when you talk about marine cargo insurance, a lot of people who have trucks in Australia have marine cargo insurance. But marine cargo is quite specific. Mm-hmm. You have to have a journey on the water. Yep. for the insurance to be effective. So there's a lot of people out there running around in their trucks with marine cargo insurance uh, who aren't insured correctly, in my opinion. Yep. Mm. <laughs> Wild. That's crazy, yeah. And I guess that's why it makes sense to, to talk to someone that knows because uh, there's a lot of legalities. Like, the law is very complicated, I think, on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Because <laughs> I'm sure there's very specific circumstances that have happened in the past and I've gone, okay, we have to write a law exactly for this and exactly for this. And, you know, that, that became the law and the tax code. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that Kerry Packer, when he was interviewed by the, the Senate uh, many, many years ago, said to them, you make all these laws, but you don't repeal the old ones. Mm. So you just keep making a law to suit you and it becomes confusing because they go back to that one and they come to this one and we're referring to law back in 1803 and here we are in 1993. And so it's really, really interesting how they go about it and they keep introducing them and introducing them and we're supposed to know them as small business people. Mm, Yeah, it certainly is very hard. I would like to see some of the red tape reduced, to be honest. Um, You know, because I think it'll just lead to better results for Australia. Like uh, I read an article the other day Australia's dropped again in the global innovation standards and it's something that we used to be really good at. I mean, like, we invented Wi-Fi. Like, Mm, (laughs) we're a great country. So, I would like to see some of that rolled back and I think we would be able to do a lot better and innovate a lot better if, uh, if that was one of the things that happened. Yeah, look, it's it's really interesting that there is so much red tape out there and there's so many conditions. Um, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission and, the, and the, um, the, the Treasury Department at the moment are, are hammering uh, insurance companies and banks and they're just making legislation stupid. And I don't mm-hmm. mean to say that to be disrespectful, but, you know, there is certain legislation in there that you can't do and you can't comply with or the compliance is just so much. All you're doing is spending time complying and not earning any income. And so it's it's just just gone from one extreme to another. And when they change the law, they go from one extreme to another. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to comply with that or you're supposed to understand it when you're talking with a simple person sometimes. You just can't do it. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's uh, I've noticed even for my business, just um, running a small operation, like things are um, like the, the compliance does take up a lot more time than I would like to. And uh, like we've been going through the process of building a house and the amount of regulation that you have to get through to, to get that makes it so time consuming because we're just looking to move in, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. It is. I mean, and the reason for that is, is that we have people who are dishonest yep. and they, they use the wrong material. They do the wrong thing then we have a disaster. So they're they're trying to prevent risks from happening. And I get that and I Mm -hmm. understand that. It's one of my passions at the moment when we talk about if you just do your job right, then everybody else will be able to flow along with that. But it doesn't always happen. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I would like <laughs> like to see everyone do their jobs properly and that would be really good. <laughs> yeah, it would. I mean, I, I had my bathroom renovated a year ago and the guy came out and he was lovely and he did the job and then I had a building inspector come and, and check it and uh, the job wasn't quite right mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't finish the last payment and the guy threatened my life. 
Jeez. And you just go, hmm. So when I checked with Consumer Affairs, who regulates builders in South Australia, uh, they said, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and I said to him, I said, well, he doesn't have any insurance. How can you allow that to happen? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we can't monitor everything. I said, well, you get a renewal every year of his licence. Surely it's easy just to put insurance with it, provide a certificate of currency with it and communicate with the insurance companies. If they cancel it, the insurance company has to tell you it's not that much more to do, but they weren't interested. Yeah, man, that must be so frustrating. Mm. And yeah, it really does come down to people just doing the job and just that competency. So, what I try and do is I, I surround myself with people that are really competent. It's those people that are doing great things and really want to succeed and just do right by everyone else. So, I guess when you were scaling out your business, that's obviously a, quite a challenging thing for a lot of people to do. What was the process? How did you get the right team of people there? It's really interesting. I mean, you've, you've got to do your research. Like you do anything, if you do your research thoroughly, you will come out with the right results. So you need to educate yourself, make sure that the people you have around you have the education or the experience to understand what it is that you're trying to build. So when you're building a new business and you're starting from the ground, you really do need to have your business plan in place. You need to have your risk register in place and identify where you're going and how you're going to do that. And you you hear likes of of Richard Branson, a good friend of mine. Jerry Harvey talk about you know just have your daily goals write them down daily um, and and go out and achieve them on a daily don't don't go out for a Ferrari immediately you know, go and put your goals and your eyes on a, on the mini and then move up to the, the 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 Mercedes and then the the Ferrari and you do this in small baby steps a lot of people grow really really quickly we've got some some young entrepreneurs around the country that are growing so fast and yet they get to a certain stage and they just fall apart. And so you need to have good, strong foundations. Yeah, and I think a lot of it is they they get comfortable. Mm. You know, they, they achieve a certain level of success and they go, oh, yeah, this is pretty good. I don't need to work as hard anymore. Uh, but one of the things I do to mitigate that is what I'll do is anytime my bank account goes over $2,000, <laughs> that money is either in stocks or in real estate in in the mortgage to help pay off that debt. So, I've got got $2,000 to my name. That's all I've got. I need to go out and I need to really make things happen. Yeah, what a great thing to do. I mean, and and that's what it should be. You should always have that goal and and work towards it. Well done. (laughs) Yeah, I think you just got to stay hungry. And um, like, I'm really passionate about making music videos and filming for people. And it's it's something that has changed the the country industry quite a lot in the last few years, uh, which I've been really excited to be part of um, and I think the thing that's really led to to that is just having that passion and that drive to really achieve the best possible result that you can uh, for the clients yeah look and you do that and it's it's a long process and people don't understand that when they come to us sometimes and they say we need insurance or we need you know to, to uh, cover some of our risks the process is really lengthy and they don't understand it the cost of going through that process is is quite big Mm. but you identify everything so it becomes your bible it becomes a part of your business plan and you know and rest assured that you can actually go to sleep of a night time knowing if your factory or your shop or whatever it is burns down tomorrow that we're going to move straight in and we're going to get you back up and running straight away yeah that's a great service to have that one (laughs) yeah it is yeah fantastic um so what I wanted to ask, was there an example that you have of something where, like, I want to try and get into, like, the 
biggest insurance uh, things that you've like that you've insured? Uh, is there anything that's been like insanely massive where you're like, well, this is quite a big thing to insure? Yeah, look, it's it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I do the general insurance side of things and the life insurance side of things, which is not common. Mm-hmm. But uh, there are certain instances where we've had people that required or needed insurance for two, three hundred million dollar loans. Mm. So to be able to get insurance for that amount is just enormous and it's a big, big job. So we've we've been able to get insurance for people who have suffered previously from cancer mm-hmm. or a, a brain tr- tumour or something like that. Very, very difficult to do. However, um, the, the end result is that, you know, they were covered and that the last example, the gentleman, um, he had a $50 million a year turnover business and he got really, really ill. For two years or three years, he didn't quite meet the qualifications or definitions. Mm -hmm. But I persisted with the insurance companies and persisted and persisted. And one day I said to the deputy CEO of AMP, I said, Paul, this guy's really, really sick. And you keep saying he doesn't meet the definition, but he's losing everything. Mm -hmm. His doctor said that he's likely not to... Uh, be with us within a two-year period, which meets your definition, but your insurance um, claims manager says no because they don't see it meeting the definition. He had a look at it. We had a discussion about it, and four weeks later, the guy got a $12 million check. It changed his life. Mm. He actually started to recover, and he's doing okay. We're now 15 months down the track, and his health is getting better. He's got financial health, um, and if you don't have your financial health behind you, it can affect everything that you're doing, your business, your marriage, your health, everything. Yeah, for sure, because it would put so much extra stress on you too, like especially um, for someone that's turning over $50 million a year, like your expenses are also probably going to be quite high, and if things do go south, like it's going to be really hard to meet some of those payments. So, it's really great to hear a story like that because so, so many times... Like, yeah, you do hear examples from insurance companies where they're like, no, nah, we're not covering that. So, it's really nice to hear a change and, and hear that they could could actually pay that out and really help that guy, even though it wasn't quite within the definition. Jay, insurance companies um, do have a heart, regardless of what we think. We've never had a claim not paid mm-hmm. in my nearly 40 years in this industry. Every time you go to them and you, you present to them a story based around their definitions, and even sometimes not. We've had insurance companies, uh, Zurich one time paid a, a person out because it di- but while it didn't meet the definition, they understood that there was a loss and it was a big loss. And um, Zurich stood up and said, okay, well, we will help this person out because we want to help them out because they think um, and need to be covered. So insurance uh, can be really good for everybody. And insurance companies aren't as difficult as people think they are. Yeah, oh, that's fantastic to hear. Um, so, do you have any other examples of when, uh, like, insurance has been absolutely paramount to saving someone's business, like it was going to completely crush them? Look, we, we see it on a regular basis um, where things go wrong. Now, we've we had uh, examples of small business that go out and they, they work on mines and those sorts of things and they present with their certificate of currency and the mine says, well, you're supposed to start the project today but it doesn't meet our definitions or our needs and they ring you up from the job site and they say, we need this today and we need this now. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a special 
industry, a special market. You've got to go to uh, the United Kingdom, to, to Lloyd's of London to try and get these sorts of things covered. So there are times where people are just stuck and they can't work, they can't do this, they're going to lose the contract and whatever. We just go out of our way and beyond and we make sure that we present something for them as quickly as we possibly can so having our own underwriting facility makes a difference where we can actually meet those needs you we have people who are about to get on a plane and they they ring up and and with this coronavirus we've had people (laughs) ring up and say can i insure against it i'm going to china and i said yeah just don't go to china (laughs) because today you can't do it so it's it's only you know you truly only know how good your insurance is when it comes time to claim Mm -hmm. however there's a lot of people running out there that do not have insurance and when they have an incident they ring up and say can i get insurance now it's it's just too late it's too late once mm. it's done yeah yeah oh well, it's great great to hear that you know some really interesting things that you're, you're talking about here um so uh we we've talked about covering like 20 like 200 million dollar deals 300 million dollar deals like what's the process of that like how does someone walk in and go you know i want to insure like this this deal for like 200 300 million dollars yeah look it's, it is an interesting process a lot of brokers just put together what they think is best but you really have to start a book so you have to start from the beginning you identify the risks and you you build a risk register with these people, with these clients or whoever it is and you build this for the insurance company and you show the insurance company what what the risks are and how you've mitigated them, what your controls are and how effective they are. And what that can do, that can actually reduce your premiums because the insurance company can say, well, they've got it all in hand so our maximum risk is not what we thought it was. Insurance companies can only do what they do based on the information they're Mm -hmm. told and if if we give them more information about the risk, how we identify any issues, how we're going to mitigate or stop or do whatever, uh, they become a lot more comfortable. So if you're a person, for example, if you're running a a company, a plumber, I've got a a guy in Adelaide who, who has 200 plumbers out there and they do something wrong and have an accident. We had a fire there not long ago, which caused about $40,000, $50,000 worth of damage to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. The risk is, you know, that employee's done the wrong thing. He hasn't complied yep. and he hasn't followed the rules and therefore he puts the company at risk because they're not insured. Yep. We do find a way to get around that. It's like the theme park in Queensland. What happened was is that those people died on that ride Mm -hmm. simply because somebody didn't do their job. They didn't follow it through each and every day. And as I've said before, if you do your job properly, everybody else does their job properly, you reduce the risk. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, especially as like you're scaling up because uh, a lot of small business owners, they think, oh, you know, I, I, if I do everything myself, it's going to be right. But at some point, you do have to scale up. And it's when you have other people working for you that that is something that's completely out of your control. And then yep. even more, um, it makes sense to make sure you're insured against that, especially if you have like 200 plumbers going out. Like there is so many things that can go wrong with 200 people yes yeah and look it's interesting a lot of people engage contractors mm-hmm. um, and they don't think to ask the contractor for their insurance if the contractor doesn't have insurance then he causes an issue and you're the main um, contractor it's your responsibility and there's such a thing called proportionate responsibility if if they're working under your instructions it's your insurance they're going to come for and if you haven't checked his insurance then you're going to carry the burden of it 
Definitely. So, uh, something else that you do is a lot of like uh, financial planning and um, just preparing for retirement. Is yep. that, yeah. So, um, a lot of people, are, uh, I guess when they're starting a business, they really struggle to make money. But, you know, some of those people do get quite successful and they end up uh, making quite a bit of money. And I guess the, the burden goes from really finding a way to making money to then preserving the wealth. Um, so, what are some of the best ways that you find are the best to preserve wealth? Look, it's a great question. And as I was growing Growing up as a child, mum always taught me to put 10% of everything I earn away. So there's the, the, the amount of income I've earned that week. And when I was working, it was like $42 a week. Yep. So my 4 or $5 a week would go away into a savings account. Now, if you do that, and it, it's not the amount of money you put away, it's the term that you put money away. Mm-hmm. So if, if you do that each and every week, when you turn 50 you'll have more money than you know what to do with. And and that's one of the secrets. It's the secret of compounding interest and allowing it to grow and being sensible. It's nice to see these people go and, and invest in Bitcoin and earn a million dollars of investing you know, $100 10 years earlier or whatever. We're not always that lucky. But if you consistently put it away and you stick to those goals every week and you put 10% away, it works. And that's why the government's doing it with superannuation. They're making us do it. They're forcing us to save money. And it's, it's a great thing. But if you do your... 10% as well, when something comes up, you'll have that money there for you. Yeah, I think that was a really good scheme they put in place because uh, I was reading a, a um, an article the other day and it was based on different income brackets. You'd have people that were making 50000 100000 150000 200000 and, and more and something that I found incredibly interesting uh, in this particular article was that regardless of the income bracket, 30% approximately of each of those brackets felt like they were living paycheck to paycheck. It's interesting, you know, you ask, uh, you, you say that when somebody wins lotto, normally 12, 18 months, maybe 24 months after they're back in the position they were in before they got there. Hmm. So it's really interesting when when money comes into people's hands, how it slips through. We've got people who are in incomes of two or three million dollars a year and they still have a mortgage. Yep. We have people in their 80s who have been running successful businesses and they still have a mortgage. And <laughs> you know, you've, you've got to say to them, at 80 years of age, you don't have any superannuation. You're relying on the building that you're in for your superannuation or your business and then there's a disruptor come along and you've got no business and you've still got a mortgage on the building and you've still got to pay it, there's, there's, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. And the disruptors are going to come in faster and quicker than we've ever seen before. So what we know tonight, today is not going to be there tomorrow and that's, that's how quickly it's going to happen and change. So you have to put it away today. You have to be consistent and religious in doing it and when you get to 50, at your age, when you get to 50, you'll be able to turn around and say, I don't have to do it anymore. I'm glad I'm here, but I'm going to continue to do it. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice that I think people should take on board because I um, I talk to a lot of my friends because I, I get it. Like, I understand the investing and I think it's a great way to uh, just make sure you're set up and then you're not having to really work and rely on a government pension because you know, mm. like, how a lot of people in the government really feel about, like, raising the pension or anything like that. So, I'd rather be self-sufficient. So, I'm really big on making sure I put as much away as I possibly 
possibly can, hence like the 2,000 in the account and then everything else just uh, dis- disappears. Um, but a lot of people, they just don't seem to get it. So, what do you think are some ways that um, I guess would help people to understand like how important it is to prepare for the future? Look, um, it's it's a, an interesting question. What we need to do is we need to do our research and have a look at where other people are and, and what they've done and, and where they go. Uh, one of my really good friends, Jerry Harvey, um, uh, he says, you know, you, you've just got to put the discipline in place and do it every week and look at it, even if you have to break it down daily. You have to realise and understand what your goal is. If you want to retire at 50 years of age, you have to go back and do a full matrix and do the full figures and say a dollar today in, 50, in 30 years' time is going to be worth five cents. Mm-hmm. So I've got to put in CPI, I've got to do the figures, see a good financial planner and they can write for you your uh, business plan for retirement. And it's it's an, an interesting document to have a look at when you look at the figures and you can look at 30 years and you get to the stage of retirement and what that looks like and continues to look like. I'm, I'm currently doing my master's in applied finance and I've, I've just finished um, one of the, the courses, which was superannuation and retirement. Mm-hmm. I did this... 25 years ago and it's a very different beast today as a, to, to what it was then yep. and what it's what the the example was is these people were from Wollongong around the corner they were re, uh, retrenched he was 52 or 53 she was 51 or 52 he'd been offered a job in the Pilbara so he was moving on a, a good income 195,000 a year mm-hmm. only had uh, 270,000 in super Mm-hmm. and thought, I'm never going to make this. How am I ever going to do this? But when we sat down and we did the figures and we showed him how he could do it, uh, he actually got into the stage where he got to 63 years of age because he wants to retire at 63, Yep, where he never had to want for anything at all and his money actually grew, continued to grow and he was drawing an income of $65,000 in today's money in 20 years' time or 15 years' time it was. So it's achievable but you have to do it daily and you have to do it consistently and it's the length of time and I will say that all the time. If you have uh, children and you start putting away, even if it's only $5 a week into a bank account and when they get to 25 years of age, you'll be surprised much money's there there is more than enough to buy a house yeah it's pretty impressive like just the compounding effect is yep. quite remarkable and that's uh that's something that i focus on a little bit because i um i have real estate and i also spend um a bit of cash in stocks as well so we have a long-term goal of having passive income that's going to get over a hundred grand a year because at this point like we we spend nowhere near that um <laughs> but we feel like making that per year like saying dividend stocks and, and real estate um, investments that that's going to be great that we can uh, just have that set up nothing uh, if anything bad happens then there's going to be no financial problems and we can either choose to work or not to work and we're going to be fine I think a lot of people it would be great for them to try and uh, aim towards something like that because I think 100, 100 grand in passive income a year over time it's it's not a huge thing and I think most people could probably do that with some dedication yeah and that's what it is as you say Jay it's, it's the dedication it's the time it's the consistency and the persistency if you stop and you know this as an entrepreneur or a person in business if you stop 
and you get disheartened, you're never going to reach that goal. And if you set it so high, and if you did set it at a million dollars a year um, recurring income, then you probably set it a little bit about out out of your goals. But 100 is, is very, very achievable. Mm. And today you can do that. To retire, the government's telling us that we need probably five or six times our income in a lump sum into superannuation or whatever. The, the superannuation industry has been a, a very difficult thing. So they change the laws every day and they change the regulations every day. They're going to tax this. They're not going to tax this. They're going to do this. They're going to do mm-hmm. that. So it's very, very unpredictable. So you have to have your own plan on alongside that as well. So I, I've got to say it's great to hear somebody of your age to say I'm actually now doing something about my future and I'm actually working towards my future and what I want because you don't often get that. So if everyone can learn a little bit from you, they'll be a hundred times better off than they are today. Yeah, well, I hope so because like in your 20s, is if, if you're that age, it's really the time to knuckle down and make that happen because most 20-year-olds, they, they start to get decent jobs that aren't like the minimum wage ones and they start to work in a field and the, um, the, the paycheck increases but often a lot of time the expenses do. So, I, I try and keep my expenses as low as I possibly can and then everything else can put away, make passive income and then, you know, we're all sweet. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? When we do a budget with somebody, we sit down and we go what their, their expenses are and you'll find that a lot of people spend a lot of more money on alcohol and cigarettes than they realise and when you say your social spending on cigarettes and alcohol is $70,000 a year, they just look at you and go, it can't be and when you break it down and you, you, you show them their shopping docket because we make them uh, bring in their shopping dockets every week so that we do this live for six or seven weeks everything every receipt you have let's go through the bank account the receipts and see where you're spending your money where we can save some money and you would be surprised just just smoking some people spend thirty thousand dollars a year just on smoking it's unreal hey (laughs) yeah it's incredible so people say yeah how do we save money and we say well give up smoking and you'll save your health as well and a lot of money yep it is literally an example of your money going up in smoke yeah it really is yeah (laughs) crazy so um that's really interesting so what are some of the investments that you would advise people to go into Uh, because there's obviously a lot of choices you could you could put all your money in bitcoin (laughs) i'm sure that's super sound investing advice <laughs> yeah look it's it's an interesting question and, and not one that i can make specifically for anybody of because course. if i'm giving advice here on the podcast and somebody acts on that then i can be held liable you really need to see a licensed financial planner you need to see somebody who has a great reputation and do your research on your financial planners and have a look at what they've done and who they do business with Investing depends on the risk attitude and whether they'd like to take a risk or not. Investing in stocks or investing in small companies, investing in cash. So you've got to do your risk profile and understand what risks I'm prepared to take with my money. It's like lending somebody some money. If you lend somebody some money, a family member, bet on it not coming back, (laughs) okay? Because that's the risk you're taking. If it comes back, it's nice. But if you lend them 5000 or $10,000, you need to prepare to say, well, I'm, I'm probably not going to get that back. And it's the same with shares sometimes. You can put it in there and, and panic. And a lot of people buy shares and they buy them at $2 and they see it come down to a dollar and they panic and think, I'm not going to lose anymore, and they cash in. It's one of the biggest mistakes we make. If you're going to buy shares, you're going to sit there for 7 to 10 years and then you'll start to see the dividend. Every 5 to 8 years, it should almost double 
and mm. and that's where it is. That's the compounding effect when you get fully frank dividends and you reinvest and you do all those sorts of things. Or how do you do it? We don't have the time to be active like brokers. I can't sit there and watch my portfolio daily and go, it's gone up twenty percent. I'm going to take the profit and run. I can't, I don't have the time to do that. Yep. So find a good financial planner who's active in what they're doing and who can educate you in how to do it. And when you retire, maybe you want to take it over and do it yourself. I was with uh, Con Contista yesterday, 98 years of age, mm. and he's still investing, and he's still producing 30 35% return on his money at 98. <laughs> it's incredible. Awesome. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. I think a lot of the panic selling, I find, comes from under-researching a company. And when, when I go to invest in a company, I'll go through all their financials, I'll see what the growth rate is, I'll see what their balance sheet looks like and make sure it's not trash. And if I see a stock go from like $50 down to $30, I go, fantastic. Now, mm. it is an even much better deal. I'm going to buy some more. Because if you have like your full commitment to a company and you confidently have looked at the financials and think that's going to be good. Like, if it's going down, like, that's a deal. <laughs> yeah, and, look, and it is. And this is where people don't do the research like you're doing is, is you sit there and you research it from the beginning to end. You need to understand the company that you're investing in. You need to be comfortable with that. Shares will go up and shares will go down. And we've, we've seen it. We've seen them drop. 30%, 40%, 80%. And people do panic sell. When the market goes down, that's when everybody wants to sell. It just doesn't make sense. That's when you should be buying, not selling. <laughs> that's right. Yep. Open up the bucket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely. raining gold. Yeah. 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 yeah so that's, uh, that's really interesting. So let's, um, I guess, transition into real estate. So it's been a little bit turbulent. Like things have gone up, they've gone down. Uh, what do you kind of foresee happening with, with the economy and like interest rates and uh, just real estate in general? Yeah, great question. Are we heading towards the Japan interest rates? I mean, are we heading towards negatives? Where are we going? My stepfather asked me uh, last Monday, you know, is it possible for us to go into negative rates? And I said, well, Japan's been in negative rates for two decades. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it is possible. And he said, well, what does that look like when my money's in the bank? Do they actually take my money away? I said, it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> that's not what they're doing. Um, you know, that's the, the cost of money going into the banks and the cost of money going into to business and that's the cost of doing business mm -hmm. so they they're subsidizing that it's a really interesting question when you talk about real estate in south australia uh, where i i'm now currently living uh, we plateau we stop we don't tend to go backwards like you experience here mm -hmm. um on the eastern state so we see sydney and and, and melbourne go up and down by 40 or 60 percent and it can be crazy yep. and all of a sudden within two or three months things have turned around or something's changed and it starts rallying and then it it, it doesn't stop here it goes up or it goes down and so a lot of people again tend to buy as it's going up oh the real estate market's good it's time to get in mm -hmm. again just like the share market um, it's when it's had its kick in the stomach and it's fallen is the time to buy and you can't always do it you're not always i wish i was that clever i'd, <laughs> I'd uh, be, be doing it myself real estate is different to shares because you can actually see the property and a lot of people prefer real estate to shares i'm not a real estate investor yep. i don't love it at all i've seen people just get to the stage of retirement and they've gone to say okay it's time to sell the property and they they're losing money Mm. And they're going, oh, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to sell it. Or the market's down and they can't sell it. So it's very, very different to shares where you can sell it at any time you like. 
the only time you you would get stuck with shares is if the government's put a stop on that particular fund, and that would normally be a property fund, a commercial property fund, where it's there's too many people taking money out, and there's um, there's a, a reason for them to say it's time to stop and slow down because we don't want to see everybody lose their money. Mm-hmm. So you know, real estate can be good. I've seen people make lots and lots of money out of out of real estate. We've seen Frank Lowy do it with Westfield and and his yep. portfolio of properties, um, and I've seen other people go the other way with property. We've had an example with some people in Queensland just recently where they had three properties in Brisbane and all of them he owes more on them than than he paid for them three years Mm -hmm. ago so it can be difficult you need to be careful when you're investing in property if you're investing in property as a, a small investor for retirement really think about what you're doing because I'm a great believer that I don't want to lock my money down. I don't want to put it in a place where I can't get to it. In retirement, it's my opinion, and my opinion is different to a lot of people. You need to be able to uh, get to your money in the event that there's an emergency. And one I use is, what happens if one of the the grandchildren or or somebody um, has an illness and the only way that um, you can have that rectified is send them to America for you know, emergency mm-hmm. um, medical attention and the cost of that is three four hundred thousand dollars if you're locked in property you can't do that if you're locked into a a lifetime pension you can't do that so just be careful when you're locking money into real estate or lifetime pensions understand that if you need to get it you can't get it straight away yeah very much so and i guess it comes down a lot to due diligence and really understanding where you're buying what you're buying and all those kinds of things yeah and i think you need to educate yourself in the financial planning world before you go to see a financial planner so that you can be clear in what you want. My goals are this and I want to achieve this and if in the event that there's an emergency in the middle, I need to be able to rely on this and so do a complete plan. So, yeah, thank you for that question. Oh, yeah, Yeah. no worries at all. So, there's a lot of young business owners that uh, listen to this podcast and some people are wanting to start a business but they're not quite sure. Um, So, it is quite, quite a younger audience. What do you think are some things that people can do to start their business? Listen, when you start your business, I mean, business planning is, is crucial. I mean, when you say to somebody, where's your business plan? They, again, they look at you. But if you don't document what you're trying to do and how you're going to do it, do it, how do you achieve it? We've seen businesses go in or people go into business without a business plan and the first four or five years is great. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden there's no business. Uh-huh. They don't have a business plan. They don't know how they're going to continue to grow. And some of them grow exponentially. Some of them grow into multi-million dollar businesses overnight. And then five years later, it's gone. 95% of business fails in the first five years. Mm. Um, and and it's, it's, it's really interesting. If you have a plan and you put in protections, uh, mechanisms to protect everything that you're doing, you will be fine. But don't do it without a proper business plan. Yeah, of course. It's pretty pretty sound advice. Yeah. Um. So thank you guys. So uh, thank you so much for coming on. Like it's been been really interesting to to hear like your insight and uh you know you've done so many fantastic things and and there's so much great advice there which I think a lot of people can take take away um and and learn from. So what's the the best way if if someone's looking to get insurance or you know they're looking to plan for a time and how do they get in contact with you? Yeah. Listen, I'm I'm easily contactable. I'll give everybody my phone number and somebody will answer the phone. 
line. It's 0403 389 579 mm-hmm. or email is admin at cbdis.com.au, which is CBD Insurance um, happy to help out, happy to uh, give them a free evaluation in the first instance and then move on from there. But our service does cost. Mm-hmm. We, we do um, charge a fee for our service depending on the service that's required. But if you're starting in business or you've got a business and you haven't got the proper um, mitigation or insurance or business plans in place, reach out to us and we'll put you in touch with the right people to make sure that the continuation of your business is forever as you want. Fantastic. So, Lyndon from CBD Insurance, what's one final piece of business advice that you got? Do your business plan and and stick to it and it will always happen and get expert advice. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to have you. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much. And uh, you've been listening to the Blacklist Sessions. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, We've got a lot of great guests coming up. There's so many interesting guests that we have on this podcast from all all walks of life doing so many different things. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in business, you're interested in music, then uh, make sure you subscribed on Spotify, subscribed on Apple Music, any of your platforms that you listen to. And uh, hopefully we'll catch you again shortly.